Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 79. And we're right on time. No, we're never. No, fuck. It doesn't rhyme. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. Well, and I was going to say, last episode, we said, 78, we're always late. And then you said, we're right on time. <laughs> no, we're not. We're no, definitely not. We're not. Y'all, picture it. Oh, shit. You know what season it is right now? Love bug season. Y'all. Love bug season. So we went to Kirkland's because I bought tea towels that were Halloween themed and I had to go pick them up because it was free to ship to the store. And your girl's got to save some money because she's buying all the Halloween tea towels. (laughs) And then they had a 25% off sale. Mm Mm-hmm. Of everything, like your entire purchase, and your girl had to get some more false stuff. Mm-hmm. So I didn't save any money. But I got three little pumpkins. Mm-hmm. One said, boo y'all. Mm-hmm. One said, witch please. Uh-huh. And one said, creep it real. That's right. I got the creep it real and maybe the boo y'all. Oh, did you? Mm-hmm. Copycat. <laughs> well, so I was like, let me drop them off at my new house that we haven't moved into. So, went in there to drop it off and turned on the lights and I was like, the fuck is in here? Infested with love bugs, y'all. So, if you are new to the podcast and you haven't heard our disdain and all the hatred. We don't love love bugs. Or you're from an area that you're like, the fuck is a love bug? A love bug is the most useless and annoying fucking bug ever to have been created yes all they do is attach they fuck butt to butt and fuck and make more goddamn love bugs and they do it twice a fucking year yes and we're in the september love bug season Mm -hmm. they don't bite they don't they literally do nothing but have sex and procreate and take the fucking paint off the front of your car yes because they're like it sounds like it's when blood bug season is like in full swing and you're driving, especially in the country, it mm-hmm. sounds like it's raining from all the love bugs dying on your car. Like we're not lying. And some, so they don't bite. It's not, it's like, they're just annoying. And they're yeah. attracted to like, to white, mm-hmm. like white houses, white, white shirts, everything. They flock to it. Again, they don't bite nothing. They're not, I mean, it's. It's, it's just annoying. Yeah. Well, in Donna's new house. It was like a love bug graveyard. Mm-hmm. It it literally was. And some of their relatives were still doing visitation. Uh-huh. They were shaking hands, drinking <laughs> coffee at the wake, waiting to go for the funeral. People were having sex at the funeral. I mean, I'm, is yep. there a problem with that? I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, yeah, because I wasn't. So what ended up we figured out was that... Whoever the dumbass was that installed Donna's new windows didn't close them all the way and lock them. So, like, they weren't open, but they weren't sealed closed. Mm-hmm. And so they were crawling up through the fucking window That's and getting white. inside. Mm-hmm. And coming inside. So when uh-huh. we figured we locked all the windows, I was like, wait, why are none of these locked? So we went through locking them all. And then when we were sitting there resting after locking them all... <laughs> Don't judge us. We had to try out the new furniture. We had to try out the new furniture, and we had to make a list of all the shit that was wrong, including a couple of the windows that wouldn't fucking lock. Right. Brand new damn things. Anyway, 
you could see them like trying to come back Ooh. up through the window. So it was like, oh yeah, that's definitely how they came in. Uh-huh. Yep. So we put some furniture together, swept up all the love bugs. This is why our friendship works, though. This is what I told. <laughs> Tiffany was there. It was me, Don, and Tiffany. I was like, this is why our friendship works. Because when we do shit like that together, I mean, we fight. Because who doesn't fight putting fucking yeah. furniture together? But Donna's the reader of instructions and the holder. So mm-hmm. if I'm like, hold this while I blah. I mean, I take the instructions from her and I'm like, give me that. But then I'm like, <laughs> yes. Here, can you just read those and tell me what to do? <laughs> yes. So Donna's the reader and the holder. I'm the doer. I'm the one that's going to, like, screw it in. Because <laughs> we yeah, all know however. she likes to screw. And then Tiffany's the, like, fixer-upper. Like, she's the one she's that comes goer. behind you. Yeah, she's like the runner. She's the one that, like, sweeps up the dead love bugs <laughs> and picks up the trash that you're making yeah. while you're, you know. So, it's like it's like this stream. Of, this is what happens when you've been friends for 25 years. Yes. Know your role. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you forget yours sometimes. Well, because you don't read the fucking instructions <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, true. <laughs> oh, God. I mean, it has numbers, y'all. You know? <laughs> and those, like, they'll draw arrows, and I'm like, well, is it going in it or on it? I, I don't know. know. I don't know. Yeah. I take a guess, and usually wrong. Again, 50-50. Y'all know I'm going to pick the wrong one. Anyway, so my disdain of love bugs grew, 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 grew. Okay, one more quick line of business thing before we get going into the episode that I'm super excited about to do this story. We have a new Patreoner that came just in time to get all of the Halloween good good. Yes, it's Tiffany F. from Tennessee. And she's the host of My Husband is Wrong podcast. So thank you so freaking much for being part of Patreon. And supporting us, if you want to be part of Patreon to get all the bonus content, including episode shout-out, bonus episodes, bloopers, and all the Halloween good good, head on over to patreon.com slash theapcpodcast. Yep, yep, yep. So, I had been reading this book, and it's called Bitter Blood, and it's by this journalist named Jerry Bledsoe. And when I first started reading the book, and by reading I mean listening to I was like, oh God, this is kind of starting out kind of slow. Like, there's just so many names and so many people. And I was like, shit, I'm never going to keep this shit straight. Is that how people feel on your stories? 100%, I'm sure. Great. And now you're going to do that? Great. Exactly. Okay, Paula Gertrude all over again. I'm calling it people. Well, here's the thing, though. I know this story better than Paula and Gertrude. True. Because I'd listened to a whole book about it. But we're not going to go into as much detail, obviously, as the book because it was a 20-hour listen. Holy fuck. Mm-hmm. But, of course, I listened to it on on that. I listened to it on 1.75. Because mm. that's the only thing I don't like about Apple Podcasts is that they have a 1.5 and a 2. Yeah. I need the in-between. 1.5 is too slow for me. I need 1.75. And, see, I would rather have the 1.25. <sighs> that's what I listen. Because I still like the inflection and everything. I get that. No, you don't. It is just like this. Yes, exactly. You still get the... Rise and lower. Okay. <laughs> she could read the scariest book or listen to it, and she'd be like, no, it wasn't scary. Be like, the ambiance just wasn't there. Uh, no wonder Pennywise was like, we all flew out here. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So we're going to be in like the 1970s, 80s. 
And we're going to talk about some families that are from the North Carolina area that were just like very wealthy. You know, the name meant something to them. Yeah. There was a young girl. Her name was Susie Sharp Newsom. And she grew up in a very well-to-do, well-known family. The Sharp and the Newsom name both were well-known in the community. She, Susie was actually the namesake of her aunt, Susie Sharp. Susan Sharp, you know, same thing. And the OG Susie Sharp, she was actually a judge in North Carolina and was the first elected female chief justice in the state Supreme Court. Damn. Yeah, so the Sharp family was a very, like I said, well-known family, very influential but they just had, like, a lot of pull and a lot of power. Cloud. Yeah. And there were very high expectations placed on the Sharp kids. But Susie's mom, Florence Newsom, because, obviously, she got married, and Susie Sharp were sisters. Warning, warning, lots of names in this fucking thing. <laughs> I'm going to try to keep them as organized as I can for y'all. Susie was beautiful, smart, just... The apple of her parents' eye. She had a brother, but they just doted on her. But because they doted on her so fucking much, she was a spoiled brat. She, like, was well known for her tantrums. And just, like, even as she aged, too. Like, it wasn't just, like, a kid with her tantrums. Like, if you if you did anything that she felt was, like, a slight against her, like, she's done. Like, you were toast you know and it and it may have been something so simple that wasn't even malicious or anything damn just a comment or whatever and she would when she got mad she washed her hands of you and she was done oh girl she would not like it right now Mm-mm. one of the articles talked about that when she and her mom would argue or she would be in these tantrums that just were so epic her mom wouldn't be able to stop her and so she would have to pour cold water on her. Fuck. It was bad. Well, Susie went to Wake Forest University and she was working to get her degree. She was very well known, well liked, all the things. Well, on the flip side, another of the Sharp sisters, so you have the the Chief Justice, Florence, who was Susie's mom. And I think she, I believe she's a teacher. I can't remember. But then you have a third sister. Her name was Annie Hill Sharp Klenner. Well, Annie was, again, one of the Sharp kids. She had high expectations for her whole, you know, that were placed upon her for how she would live, who she would marry, all the things. The Sharps were Protestant Christians. And when Annie went off to school, She ended up marrying a guy that was Catholic. So it was very controversial in the Sharp family, but they didn't want to to make a scene, and they didn't want to be all the things that she-she people do. And so they were like, okay, it's fine. Just, you know, hush, hush. She got married to him. It's fine. She converted. It's fine. It is what it is. You know, we got to have it all chill at the country club. Nobody say anything. (laughs) Well, the guy that she married, his name was Frederick or Fred Klenner, and he ended up becoming a doctor. He graduated from Duke University's medical school, very prestigious, like, amazing 
medical school, yada, yada, yada. So he graduated from there and actually became a pretty well-known physician. He set up a clinic in Reedsville and started making a name for himself. But he was odd. Like, at first, you know, everybody was like, well, and again, this is, we're talking like the 60s at this point because they hadn't had kids yet and all that. So we're, you know, this is not my opinion. (laughs) Just know that this is, you know. But they were like, well, he's Catholic. You know, they lived in the South. They lived in North Carolina. He was from, I forget where, but he was a Northerner, you know. And so they were like, maybe that's why he's so different from us. But it really ended up, he was a fucking racist. Ugh. And he fought tooth and nail to, to for, like, anti-integration. Like, he did not integrate the waiting room in his office until the 70s. What? And he, like, sent his children to schools based on their integration policies and was a fan of Hitler. And oh, it was, so he was... He sounds like a winner. Very white supremacist. Motherfucker. Not in the, like... Doomsday prepper, white supremacists. Mm-hmm. Not that there's anything wrong with being prepared for the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. But uh, if you want to only do it with white people, then that's a problem. Yes. So he had he had some issues. He also, like I said, was a physician who was making a name for himself. And his big thing was the healing powers of vitamin C. He thought that given the proper dose of vitamin C, you could... Or any vitamin too, but vitamin C was like the one Mm -hmm. you could cure anything. And so he said that with these doses of vitamin C, he could cure polio and multiple sclerosis. What the fuck? Uh Uh-huh. The other thing, though, is that he was the one diagnosing the polio Uh and multiple sclerosis. So a lot of people are like, Hmm. Yeah. Did they really have it? Wow. So, in look, in this day and time, he wouldn't have a medical license anymore. Well, he'd have a podcast called Dr. Death. Touche. <laughs> but the people who s- believed him and supported his practice and, like, you know, thought that they were really getting better, they would have fought tooth and nail to say, no, he cured me yeah. of X, Y, and Z, you know, with the vitamin C. And there, like I said, there were other vitamins that he was, like, really big on, but the vitamin C was, like, his ticket. Well, the good doctor and his wife had a very interesting relationship in that he was very much dominant to her submissive and not, like, like, she called him doctor. She didn't call him by his name. She did, like, that was how she referred to her husband as doctor to, to anyone. It, she just had a very submissive role to him. They had a son, Frederick Klinner Jr., and he went by the name of Fritz. Fritz grew up in a very structured and demanding household that he was always trying to win his father's affection and meet the high standards that were put on him, too. Because not only was he a sharp, he was a Klinner, too, now. Wow. Again, his dad had this booming medical practice in the area that... You kind of you had to keep up appearances. Well, he loved his father. He truly did. And, you know, he really tried to meet all of his dad's expectations. He usually failed, which was the hard part. 
Hmm. So, yeah. There were a few of his dad's ideologies that really resonated with Fritz that, you know, he was like diehard for. So Fritz, just like his father, Catholic, ultra conservative, and fully banking on the apocalypse happening. They were really into very white supremacist, racist, fighting the integration tooth and nail. And the other thing that his, again, ideologies that his father had that he bought into was hated communists. And it, and again, that you know, if you think about when Dr. Klinner was being raised and all of that, and even Fritz, too, his son, it was, you know, Cold War and all of that. You know, it was just like, if you think about the time, you can understand the fear as an American, but... I can't understand or get behind the hatred. Yeah. On all fronts from them. Yes. Well, okay. So after high school, Fritz actually attended the University of Mississippi because his father chose that. And since his father was paying for his education, he went where where daddy told him to. Not your kind of daddy, his actual (laughs) daddy. I don't want him as my daddy. But they chose that university because it was one of the last universities to integrate. Oh, fuck, of course. Yay, Mississippi. We're doing better. So Fritz goes to Ole Miss, and he comes home, and he tells his parents that he finished school. He kind of skirted around when the graduation was going to be happening and why he hadn't gotten his diploma and all that stuff. So his dad got a belly full of it and was like, called Ole Miss, which is the University of Mississippi. That's what it's called, Ole Miss. Called Ole Miss to be like, why the fuck haven't you sent my son his shit? We're trying to get him into medical school. Why haven't you sent his shit? And they were like, "Um, he hasn't actually graduated. And so he's like, Fritz, I need to see you for a minute. What the fuck? And Fritz is like, well, he said that he he was basically one class away from graduating. And it was a language course. And here's the thing, though. Oh, my gosh. Do you remember how I said the Klinners were, like, big supporters of Hitler? Yeah. They spoke German. Because, again, the big supporters of Hitler and all the things. So, why he couldn't just fucking take German and, you know what I mean, and graduate beats the fuck out of me. But he told his dad that he had a lot of enemies in the German department and that they were the ones conspiring to keep him from fin- finishing his degree because they, they wouldn't let him take a class. They wouldn't let him do this. They wouldn't let him do that. And so he's like, I'm going to do it as like a correspondence class from home. I'll graduate soon. And so his dad was like, okay. So he, air quotes, graduated mm-hmm. and went to Duke's medical school. Which is exactly where his dad wanted him to be. So it was like, my son's in Duke Medical School. He's going to take over my practice when he graduates. Blah, 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 blah. It kept up the who's who of the Clinter Sharp family. Yeah. Well, back to old Susie. Susie's dad, Robert Newsom, he was one of the uppity-up tobacco executives in Winston-Salem. While Susie was in college at Wake Forest, that's where she met... Tom Lynch. Tom Lynch was a couple of years younger than her, and he was from Kentucky. His family was pretty wealthy, and so it seemed like just this perfect match. But when they were dating, Susie met Tom's mother. Her name was Dolores, and hated her. 
They did not like, well, actually, they didn't like each other. Dolores was a bitch. And so was Susie. Susie, again, remember me talking about she was one of those people that, like, when she's done, she's done. She's very cutthroat. You know, you say something to slight her, and she, she's done. Well, you kind of can't do that to your future husband's mother. So, she just had to grin and bear it. I'm getting, like, monster-in-law vibes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Tom and Susie finally got married. And they moved from North Carolina back to Kentucky because Tom got into dental school. The people in Kentucky and basically every place that they lived didn't really like her because she wanted to go back to North Carolina. She wanted to go back where her name meant something, where she was somebody, at the very least in her own head, because in these larger cities that she was going to in these other states, they didn't give a fuck who she was or where she came from or anything because she was Susie. Yeah. She wasn't Susie Sharp Newsom. Right. So she really had a hard time living in Kentucky, especially at the beginning of their marriage. They were so close. They were like two hours away from his mom that she didn't like. Well, they ended up having kids. They had their first son, John, in 1974. And like, this is how bad that Susie and her and Dolores didn't get along. When John was born, Dolores was told that she had to wait for an appointment to come see the baby. What? Yeah. It was like, you want to see this baby? Mm, Gotta wait. What? Yes. Then the following year, they had their second kid, James. After they had the kids and he finished dental school, Tom decided that he wanted to move the family to New Mexico, to Albuquerque, because he wanted to set up his dental practice there. Same thing. Susie hated it. She wanted to move back to North Carolina, where, again, she had a name. She would say, like, Albuquerque lacked culture and blah, blah, blah. Er, It's like, no, it's just not your culture. Exactly. I mean, plenty of fucking culture. Yes. So, Susie and Tom just started having a lot of problems in their marriage. Would have never guessed that was going to happen. So... One time, though, their son, well, his name is James, but he went by Jim. I know. I'm so sorry, y'all, with the names. Jim had a broken arm. And they were like, oh, he fell. And so there were just, like, some injuries and stuff that had been happening to John and Jim that was kind of like, hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. The boys would only say that they fell or that, you know, Oh, we're clumsy. Oh, we're this, we're that. And Tom would never believe it. But they did call child services on Susie with the boys. Mm. There was even one time that Jim had to stay in the hospital for two days. Two fucking days? For a kid? That's a lot. Yes. Well, in 1979, Susie's grandfather was very, very sick. And so she went back to North Carolina to spend some time with him. She took the boys with her, and she hadn't been there very long when she called Tom up and said, Look, the boys and I aren't coming back. We're staying here in North Carolina. This is where we belong. Figure it out. Whoa. And so he's like, um, well, I just started a fucking dental practice. Yeah. I can't just fucking move back to North Carolina. People's jobs and lives depend on me kind of thing. So Tom is feeling the fucking pressure because he's like, look. 
these kids are so, they're four, three and four years old. And so he's feeling the pressure because she's staying out there. He has to stay in Albuquerque because that's where his new dental practice is. She is part of this very connected and influential family that has a fucking judge as an aunt. He's like, what am I going to do to get these boys back? Right. He agrees to sign a custody agreement, letting the boys stay in North Carolina with Susie. So Tom signed the custody agreement just to keep the peace And Susie and the boys were staying in Greensboro, North Carolina. Well, Susie was obsessed with, like, Chinese culture. And she just got a wild hair one day and was like, the boys and I are moving to Taiwan. Oh, well. We're going to go to Taiwan so that I can teach English. So Susie and the boys, John and Jim, moved to Taiwan. They only make it six months, though. And the book... Bitter Blood does a really good job of describing their time there and why they had such a hard time. You know, they lived with another family. They didn't have their own space. You know, just the differences in the culture that she didn't account for. And, you know, she just, it just didn't work. And so she and the boys came back to the States. No one saw that coming. Right. They came back in June of 1980. And everybody kind of noticed, like, Susie was, she was very thin. The boys looked terrible, really thin. They, you know, they just weren't really themselves. It was almost like it had broken her. Mm, gosh. And so when they got back, Susie's mom was like, you look terrible. Like, you look sick. Like, we need to get you to the doctor. So, of course. Oh, Lord. You got a doctor in the family. Mm-hmm. Vitamin C. Mm-hmm. We got to go see the good old Dr. Klinner. So, in this time, when Susie's starting to come see Dr. Klinner, is when Fritz is a, quote, medical student at Duke's Medical School. And he's creating all these, like, elaborate stories, which he's always done. Mm-hmm. That, you know, it's like... There's just enough in it to make it plausible, but then you're like, well, you know, and especially given the fact that he lied about finishing Ole Miss and, you know, his dad graduated from Duke Medical School, too. So it was like this was like the dream. And so he had he felt like he had to keep up that facade because shit, he's years deep now, you know? Yeah. Well, he told his dad that he was involved in all this like groundbreaking blood research. And so his dad would take these blood samples from his patients and send them to Fritz to be analyzed. Oh, Lord. And really, Fritz is Elizabeth Bathory, and he just puts all the blood all over. Well, that's just nasty. (laughs) So. Sorry, I took it way too far. I I expected nothing less. (laughs) I mean, If it gets rid of wrinkles, count me in. So Fritz had apartments in both Reedsville, where his father's medical practice was, and Durham that he would, so he would go to the apartment in Durham and stay Monday through Thursday so he could go to class, do rounds at the hospital, you know, because he's very important. (laughs) And when he was home, he would even like go to his dad's medical practice and like follow his dad around and wear his white coat and all this fucking bullshit. And Fritz always had his medical bag with him, and 
he always had his vitamin C, his what he called stress pills. He would give people injections of vitamin C. What? Yeah, he would like, he had like a prescription pad that he would like prescribe medicine that you're not a doctor. Even if you were actually in medical school, you haven't finished. So he was just in very deep. There was no coming out of it either, though. I think that, you know, if you look at his progression of his life, again, Bitter Blood Book does a really good job about talking about how he was raised and all the different lies that he's told throughout the years. And it's just this tangled web that he's spun about his education and all of this stuff. And it's like, I, I really think that at some point he kind of started believing it. Wow. Well, the judge, Susie Sharp, was not only Susie's aunt, but she was Fritz's aunt too. Remember? Because their, their mothers were all sisters. And... She was a very intelligent woman, obviously. You don't become, you know, you don't get where she got without being smart. So she was like, there's just not, there's just something that's not right about all of Fritz's stories. So she did some digging and called up her friend who at the time was president of Duke University. Oh, shit. That's the thing about like highfalutin people. They all got connections Mm -hmm. and like. Not just like, hey, my friend works over at the office, knows someone that does this. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. Like, like they know the people. Beep, beep, boop, boop, boop. And it's the this person. Is, yeah. This is President Sanford. <laughs> that was his name, really. Oh, oh, was like, you just pulled that out of uh-huh. your ass. That, his name was actually Terry Sanford. Oh, okay. But I wouldn't get to say it because it was like seven billion names mm-hmm, in, mm-hmm. but then it just came out. So, old President Sanford said, yeah, you know, the only Frederick Klinner that has ever been enrolled in Duke graduated in 1940, or in the 1940s. And so she was like, skirt, he ain't a fucking doctor. But here's the thing. Much like Dr. Death, nobody fucking did anything. Well, remember how we talked about that Fritz had a lot of his dad's ridiculous ideologies and one of the things that they liked to do was they liked to collect guns and all, because again, they were preparing for the apocalypse. Fritz became friends with the local gun shop owners and all that. And he he would tell stories about his time in Vietnam and how he was fighting against communism and that he was a Green Beret and that he ha- like he just had all these missions that he had accomplished while he was in the military. Of course, it was all fucking bullshit. Of course. But, you know... The people that he was meeting at these gun shows and gun stores and all of that, a lot of them were military men. And they were saying in the book, they talked a lot about how, like, one of the guys was like, no, I actually fought in Vietnam. And I believed him. The stuff that he said seemed real. It made sense based on his experiences of actually being in Vietnam. So it was like he knew enough to make the story so plausible yeah. that part of you was like, there's no fucking way. But then the other part of you that actually knew things like, hello, the guy that was in Vietnam was like, no, that that really happened over there. Yeah. Was like, okay, well, he's that's true. So the rest of it has to be. Fuck. Fritz, it was just a master manipulator. Yeah. But again, I think that he truly believed some of it. Well, so... We're in the time where Fritz is kind of sort of finishing up his fake medical school. Susie and Tom have the 
custody agreement. He's not happy with it. He wants to see his kids, but he's just doing the best he can do given the circumstances. Because again, you have to remember too, it's the 80s. And at the time, for the most part, children were automatically given to their mother with no consideration of the father. Susie is also seeing Dr. Klinner, the actual doctor, because she had was sick coming back from Taiwan. And I think he actually diagnosed her with MS and, quote, cured it with the vitamin C. So she was spending a lot of time at the doctor's office. And so she was spending a lot of time with her cousin Fritz. They were, you know, kind of reconnecting from childhood and, you know, started spending a lot of time together. Well, Tom has finally kind of had enough, though, of the lack of seeing his kids. I mean, she was she was keeping the kids from him. She was even using the kids as a bargaining chip to get money and, and get what she wanted out of Tom. So Tom is like, okay, it's time to file for divorce. Tom's like, she's got all this legal clout in North Carolina with her aunt that's the fucking Supreme Court justice. I'm going to file for divorce in New Mexico. Ooh. Very smart move on his Uh part. So he gets himself an attorney, files for divorce in New Mexico, but doesn't tell her because you don't have to tell her. Ended up winding up. Yeah, you don't, like, until you, like, I don't know, move forward. He never sent her the divorce papers. Mm. He just filed. Oh, okay. So now he's got an attorney and he's trying to get more custody. So Tom finally convinces Susie to let him have some visitation with the boys. Part of Susie's hang-up, not hang-up about letting him see the kids, but her anger to Tom is that Tom ended up getting married to a lady by the name of Kathy who worked at his dental practice at one point. But by all accounts, he was faithful in the marriage, and it his relationship with Kathy started after she, Susie left for Greensboro. So... Who knows, but it's really coming more from Susie's camp about, well, he cheated with Kathy. Yeah. One of the biggest things that was a battle in their custody fight was the how to get the boys from North Carolina to Albuquerque, New Mexico. Obviously, they're going to fly because it's almost completely across the country. But Tom is like, they're old enough to fly by themselves. They get escorts at the airport. You know, it's not it's not like it's like, okay, bye, have fun. Like, you know, the flight attendants help them and all of that. But Susie was like, absolutely not. There was a layover for the kids in Atlanta when they would fly. Mm. And so her thing was, absolutely not. You have to, pay, you being Tom, have to pay for an escort from North Carolina to Atlanta and then get them on that Atlanta to Albuquerque leg. And then you pick them up at the airport and by an escort, she meant her. So she would have to fly. So she would fly with the kids from North Carolina to Atlanta. And then she would fly back to North Carolina. So he basically had to pay for an extra round trip ticket. It was such a big thing in the custody battle. Cause he's like, I don't have this fucking money. Right. I, you know, I just set up this dental practice. All of my money is in that. He's got no money. So while the practice is growing, yes, and will he eventually have money? Yes. But at that moment in time, he's like, I fucking can't afford it to pay for that. But you do what you have to do to see your kids. And what was happening, too, is that she was like 
driving the kids to Atlanta and then pocketing the money from for the plane ride. What the fuck? Yeah. Well, it had been like, I think like two years since Tom had seen the kids. It was a big battle. The book also does a really good job of going into the custody battle, but we're just going to kind of touch on the, the important pieces. Well, when the boys got there, they were, they looked like they looked when they got back from Taiwan. Mm, very, yeah. very thin, underweight, you know, like underweight, not thin, but just almost like emaciated. Mm, yeah. And they had just, they looked dirty. Their nails needed to be cut. Their hair looked dirty. You know, they just looked bad. Wow. And so he and his wife, Kathy, were like, what the fuck? And when the boys got there, they took so long to warm up to Tom and Kathy, which makes sense because they hadn't seen him in so long. Yeah. And and Lord knows what what yes uh, Susie's saying about him. Exactly. And so the other thing that Tom noticed was that the boys had these, I'm picturing like a big old Ziploc bag with all these vitamins and supplements with them. And the boys told Tom, if we don't take these, mom's going to get mad. We have to take them. And it took some convincing and some time because the boys were there for an extended period of time in summer. It wasn't like they were there for the weekend. And, you know, but he finally got the boys away from this, all this medicine and threw it away. Well, come to find out, Susie and Fritz had been spending all this time together. And he, being his fake doctor self, was giving the boys all of these vitamins to take. And so that's where it came from. Not even his the, quack dad yeah, doctor. I, I was about to say that the quack of a father. That, mm, not even the real doctor who is, well, as we just said, a fucking quack. Like, what the fuck? Uh-huh. Tom is like, this has gone far enough. With all this medicine, they look really bad. You know, they... They had finally, like, they were eating. They were being kids. It was like when they first got there, they were so scared and so regimented, maybe mm-hmm. is the word, that they didn't even play. Wow. And so Tom and Kathy had finally gotten them to where they would explore and play. They'd go on hikes with them. They'd do all these things. And Tom was like, we're about to battle this. Um, This is not Okay. I want more custody. And he never was asking for full custody. Yeah. He just wanted to be able to see them enough to check in and get what he deserved to see them as a father. Well, because we obviously see what happens when he doesn't get that that chance. Mm-hmm. Dr. Klinner ended up passing away from his old age. and Wait, vitamin C didn't make him immortal? Well, I was just about to say that. <laughs> 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 really was just about to say, in spite of all the vitamin C, he died. And, you know, Fritz was already kind of going off the deep end. But his dad dying was a really difficult thing in his life because he idolized his dad. And it, he just had a really, really, really hard time with it. So, wait, did he take over the practice? Kind of. Okay. Oh, my God. He's not even a doctor, y'all. He didn't even mm-hmm. really go to the fucking school. Yeah, kind of. Okay, I'm going to jump a little bit and talk about Tom's mom. 
<laughs> that rhymed. Mm-hmm. So remember Tom's mom, Dolores Lynch, and she was monster in law. Yeah, and she just was. You know, she her husband had died not too long ago, but she just wasn't liked in the community. She didn't have that many friends. You know, like again, the book goes into really good detail about. Just she just was mean, and she just wanted things to go her way. And when she didn't, like I'm talking, like a church divided into two because of her, and like being like, we will not have that pastor or hymnal or I don't something. You know what I mean? Yeah. She just when she put her mind to something, it's how it was, and which is very similar to Susie, which is why I think they didn't get along. Which is I think also yeah. why Tom married Susie. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Well, Dolores lived in this amazing, they, I mean, they had money, this beautiful home, and her daughter, Janie, lived with her. Janie had, Janie kind of was a little interesting in her in her own right, and the book goes into her story a little bit, but she had been engaged quite a few times, but every time it got closer to marriage, she ended it and would, like, go get another college degree. It was just, she just, she was in dental school. She finished dental school, never even became a dentist, though. And Mm. then was basically engaged to one of her classmates, like, that was like a, a, well, a year or two below her. And, again, when it came close to actually getting married and she graduated dental school, she's like, "Mm, new major, and, like, went back to school. Mm. And Dolores liked it because it kept Janie with her Even if she went off to school, she still needed her for money and this. And so she was able to kind of keep Janie under her thumb. Yeah. So she was cool with it. She's like, look, we got money. We'll keep paying for school. You keep doing what you want to do, not get married, all the things. So at the time, Janie had moved back in with her mom because dental school was over. And it was time for her to move on to something new. Dolores had gone to church one. It was was on a Sunday. And Dolores had gone to church come home and had not been seen or heard from since then. Well, on July 24th of 1984, John and Jim are still in Albuquerque with Tom and Kathy when Tom gets a phone call. The phone call is from a reporter that says, basically, do you have a comment on what happened? And Tom's like, no, what are you talking about? And they're like, no comment, (laughs) you know, and hang up. So, Tom's, like, frantic trying to figure out what happened. Tom finally gets a call from a family member that says Dolores' body has been found. She was killed, and clearly she's been there a few days. Fuck. We don't know anything about Janie yet. We don't know if she was home. Shit. Well, Janie was at home, and they are both dead. Oh, Oh, fuck. Mm -hmm. Dolores had been shot in the back of the head, and it was at really close range. They know that her body had been there for at least a day. And remember, we are in Kentucky in fucking June. Oh, gosh, no. Mm -hmm. So the level of decomposition was bad. Mm -mm. Well... As the investigators are going through, they notice a trail of blood, and so they're like, shit. And when they follow it, they that's when they find Janie's body. And she, too, had been shot in the back of the head at close range. 
she had a couple of shots in her back, too. And so they were like, it almost looked like Janie was running when she was shot. Oh, fuck. And the police are like, this is a fucking professional hit. Like, there were no shell casings at the scene. The point, I mean, they were executed, basically. And so they're like, who the fuck did this? You know? Because, again, it's clearly a professional hit. Yeah. And they're like, well, we know that, you know, Dolores was a a complete bitch that has caused a lot of issues in the community. And so it's like, who wanted to hurt her? You know? It was supposed to be in the coming days that Tom was supposed to take the boys back to North Carolina. And he was like, Susie, can, can they come with me? I mean, this is their grandparents, you know. This is their grandmother and aunt. Like, can they come? And she was like, no. Wow. So he had to send the boys back to North Carolina and then go deal with the murder of his mother and sister. Wow. After Tom's mom and sister were murdered, things went way downhill with Susie, with the custody battle. Susie was, like, she she just was all about the conspiracy theory that she was telling everybody that Tom was involved with the mafia, he had all this gambling debt and that that is who took the hit out on his mom and sister. And and Tom was very cooperative with police because he was like, look, I realize that my mom and my sister being killed makes me very rich now. And so, because again, they had, they had a lot of money and so yeah. he's the only one left. So he was very cooperative with police, did polygraphs and, and came in town for interviews. And, I mean, the works, right? So, it just started spiraling with Susie's conspiracies, and it's kind of like, well, where is this coming from? Well, remember how I said that Susie had started hanging out with her first cousin, Fritz? Mm-hmm. And Fritz was very white supremacist, collector of guns, yeah. all the things. And when his dad died, he got all of his dad's collection of all the, like, doomsday prepper type things. Well, they had been spending a lot of time together. And her family was a little weirded out by it. Like, it just didn't sit right with her mom and, and I mean, her, really her whole family. Yeah. And, like, her mom's, because she was living with her parents at the time, because she had come back from Taiwan and was trying to put the pieces together and yada, yada, yada. So her mom notices how much Fritz is at the house. And sometimes when she would wake up in the morning, Fritz would be sleeping on the couch and she would see him, like, leave late at night. And when she would ask Susie about it, Susie would, like, refuse to talk about it. Oh, and, fuck. Mm -hmm. And so, one day, remember how I told you, Susie's very, like, you say something to her she doesn't like, she's going to blow the fuck up, and she's going to yeah. be done with you, right? Well, that happened. Her mom, they brought up Fritz to her again, and they were like, this looks inappropriate. I don't know if you're doing anything inappropriate, but it's got to stop because it does not look good. It does not bode well for our family name. Right. He is your first fucking cousin. That is my nephew. Yeah. They're, they're mothers or sisters. Mm. Well, Susie loses her shit and immediately packs up, takes the kids, and moves out to an apartment with Fritz. Mm, okay. Mm-hmm. And they start introducing themselves like 
like to like new people, the people, everybody at the that lived at their apartment complex, and anyone that they met knew that like didn't know their family knew them as husband and wife. What? Uh huh. Okay. And so okay. Uh huh. So they had a romantic relationship, and they were just kind of like within themselves with their conspiracies and again just that kind of like doomsday prepper for the apocalypse not just like a prepper i don't mean like hey you've got a shed you know like i don't mean just like like i mean like stockpiling weapons prepper yeah and so he was feeding into her psychopathy with his Mm -hmm. and they were just it was just they were feeding off of one another and they were bringing out the worst in each other because he's lying about being a physician he's lying about having been to vietnam he's lying about all these things she is saying that the mafia took the hit out on her in-laws and is they're they're starting to like take themselves out of social situations and all that like the kids still go to school but they come home they don't play outside the kids take bags of vitamins remember me telling you about how the dad was like fucking throw these away because they don't need them but they still looked very emaciated and just no sunlight you know all things because again they go go to school and go home when the kids would go see tom as i told you before it you know at first it would take them a little bit to open up and they noticed like one time they accidentally called tom papa instead of daddy and he was like where'd that come from I think Kathy's the one who ended up getting getting it out of uh, the youngest one that that's what Fritz made makes him them call him. So like wow. it's like they're pretending like they're this happy family and it's like, no, no, y'all are first cousins. No. Right. No. What the hell? Y'all's grandparents are the same people. No. So they're getting more information from the kids to figure out like what their life is like. Tom and Kathy took the boys camping one weekend when they were there for their summer stay. And the boys were basically like, well, we go camping with mom all the time and papa. But I don't think they ever called him papa. You know, and every time Tom would say something like, well, you know, we don't have to do that. I know you do it with your mom, but we don't have to do it that way. They'd be like, mom is going to get mad. Like, we can't make her mad. And, you know, it was, they were clearly abused based on their responses and the book bitter blood goes into more detail about you know again one of them had a broken arm and just some of the injuries that they had that i for in my opinion is pretty clear that they were abused which fuck y'all mm-hmm. Ugh. well and this was happening even when Susie and tom were married that's when the broken arm happened oh yeah yeah it was Susie. oh no 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 yeah okay sorry I was like, wait, Tom let it happen too? He didn't know. He, he didn't, didn't realize because he was finishing up dental school and yeah. trying to start a dental practice. You know, he he was at work all the time. He had no idea. Mm. And then who believes that their spouse would really do that? You know, like if yeah. they've never shown you any violence before, who, I mean, how could you, you know what I mean? Well, they found out like they go camping and that they shoot a lot of guns and all of that. And so Tom was started to correspond with Susie's parents. Well, when Tom was starting his interactions with them, sometimes they would talk on the phone. They would write letters. Tom kept everything and gave them all to his attorney because he's trying to build a case against Susie. Yeah. And on you, Tom. Yeah. And her. Yeah. Keep your fucking receipts. 
And her parents knew that, too, because, again, they had had this falling out with her. They knew that the boys were not in a good place. They knew that, hell, Susie wasn't in a good place. And she's, like, pretending to be married to her first cousin. Like, they knew it was a bad thing. So while all that was coming to fruition, the communication, all because it all started at Tom's family's funeral, that they saw each other and started. Anyway, okay. Well, Bob and Florence Newsom were moving in with Bob's mother, Hattie. So that's Susie's parents and grandmother. Because Hattie was older and had this huge house that she, you know, she, while she could take care of herself, it was, you know, they were just going to start renovating to move in and all that stuff. So, so they were just, you know, working on moving in, renovating the house, all the things. Well, Bob had actually agreed to testify at the upcoming custody hearing on Tom's behalf. Oh, fuck. Like, it was serious. Like, yeah. it was like, no, he, 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 you know, again, he wasn't asking for full custody. He was just asking for the summers, you know, holidays, as much as he could get. Yeah. And still pay for them to come in. And there was some other stuff, like, he was supposed to have paid her, like, $10,000 for the furniture that she left in the house when she moved back to Greensboro. You know, there was a bunch of financial stuff that we're just not going to yeah. go over. So the hearing was scheduled for the week of May 26, 1985. Well, on May 19th of 1985, the bodies of Bob, Florence, and Hattie were all found at Hattie's house. Fuck. Mm-hmm. Bob and Hattie had both died from gunshot wounds. And Florence had stab wounds in her back, neck, and she had been shot in the head. Here's the kicker, too. Her throat had even been slit. What? So after the bodies were found, Susie was acting weird. She wasn't emotional like you'd think she would be when she, you know, finding out that her mother, father, and grandmother had just been brutally murdered. She was even, like... At the funerals, asking about her grandmother's mink coat and stuff. Wow. Just, like, really weird. And so the police are taking notice. They're looking at her. They're looking at Fritz. And they're like, this just isn't right. What's going on? And then they find out, oh, by the way, she's in a really bad custody battle with Tom. Bob was going to testify. Oh, and by the way, Tom's mom and sister were murdered, too. Wow. And so they're like, this is fucked up. Like, these are connected. Like, yeah, these are connected. There's no way. Both of these look like hits. These are connected. How are they connected? So they start doing some digging. And they know that Fritz and Long said that he was part of the fucking CIA. Oh, fuck. I mean, I feel like that's like Fight Club. Rule number one, don't talk about Fight Club. Mm -hmm. Rule number one of the CIA. Yeah. It doesn't exist. Right. Well... There was a guy by the name of Ian Perkins. He was 21 years old, and he wanted to go into law enforcement. Specifically, he wanted to go into the CIA. And Fritz honed in on this kid and oh fuck, convinced him that he, that he himself, as in Fritz, is part of the CIA. And that he invited Ian on a mission that basically Ian just had to be like kind of like a lookout type assistant to the mission. Wow. But he wasn't going to do actually do anything. Wow. 
Ian did know that his contact for the CIA, who was actually Fritz, was going to kill someone. But in his head, he was like, well, it's for the greater good because we're killing spies, basically. Mm -hmm. And so the weekend of May 17th through 19th, Fritz and Ian, you know, took off to go complete the mission. The book does a good job of saying, like, what car they were in. And, like, one time Fritz was actually pulled over during the, quote, mission. You know, just a lot of, like, logistics of the mission. Again, air quotes around that. That we're not going to go over. This is already a long enough episode. (laughs) But the police are like, okay, this is when he killed him. And he used this kid to help him. Yeah. So the police are like, Ian, dude, dude, he's not CIA. Like, not at all. He's not CIA. He's not a doctor. He killed the Newsoms. And we're pretty sure he killed Tom Lynch's mom and sister, Dolores and uh, Janie. And so Ian is like, destroyed. He's like, holy shit. No, this is... This is not, no, he's CIA. And they're like, no, he's not. You know, and showed him all the proof and stuff. And he's like, well, I'm going to fucking help you catch him. So he meets with Fritz on three different occasions, wearing a wire. Fritz is still pretending like he's a doctor. Like, gives him, like, a Xanax to help him be calm for when he takes the lie detector test and all that. Because his approach with Fritz was, the police are asking me about, that weekend that we went hunting, because that was their alibi, you know, they're going to make me take a polygraph. I'm scared I'm going to fail it. And so, you know, he's like giving him medicine, trying to talk him through all this. And so the third time that Ian met with him on the wire, they got as much of a confession as they were ever going to get out of Fritz because he said, quote, I'll write a paper saying you were not knowingly involved, that you believed you were on a covert mission for the government. And then he said, I've got things to do. I won't see you again. And so the police are like, we got to fucking move. Like, we've got to get him before he goes on the run. You know, because he had land that he used to hunt on with his dad that's now his. You know, so he could go and never be found again. And so the police go to the apartment with Su- that he shares with Susie. And they knock on the door and they're like, hey, Susie, is uh, Fritz here? And she's like, no, he's not. Well, he was. And so the police are like, Fuck, he's lying. They're lying to us. Okay, let's sit out and watch because there's nothing we can do right now. We don't have a warrant. We can't just bust up in that apartment. We know he's got guns in there, so we have to play this cool. So the detectives are in like unmarked cars watching the apartment, waiting to see because, again, they don't have a warrant. They can't just go in the apartment and say, come out for it. And again, they know that it's stockpiled with weapons and they have to be safe. At least they know. Mm -hmm. They see them start coming out and loading things into their blazer. And they're like, shit, they're, they're going to be on the move again. They're, they, the police are like, they're going to go to this fucking land and we're never going to be able to find them. And this, they, you know, and so they're taking like luggage, like bags of luggage and all that out. They have the boys with them too. And the cops are like, Fuck, the, we thought the boys were going to be at school because it's like three o'clock in the afternoon. You know, we they didn't know that Susie had kept them out of school that day. So they start following the blazer through traffic. And Fritz knows he's being followed, but he's going slow. He's playing it cool. 
there was a lot of really bad communication among, because it was state police and local police, and all of the state police were in unmarked cars. The local police didn't know anything because they weren't saying anything over the scanners because they thought that Fritz, well, they knew that Fritz had a police scanner and they didn't want him to hear any of it. And so there was a lot of like confusion among the uniformed officers and the unmarked, you know, the kind of undercover officers. But what ended up happening was it ended up being a police chase. At one point, one of the officer's cars was like, ended up skidding into the blazer and it hit the driver's side door. And when that police officer looked up, he saw a nine millimeter submachine gun pointed straight at him. Oh, what? Fritz smiling, Mm -mm. pointing a gun at the police officer. Mm, Not thinking that's the best idea. Mm -mm. Five bullets hit officer Tommy Dennis's car Two hit him one in his chest and one like grazed his belt buckle. And you know, what's crazy is that this, because he was a detective like, not a, a beat cop. He didn't have to wear a bulletproof vest, but his wife made him wear one. Good. And it saved his fucking life. Good. Every time we'd be in a fight, I'd be like, uh, you're welcome. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. Mm-hmm. So, Fritz is still firing. Other officers are shooting back at him. Another detective was hit under his right arm with a bullet. So, the, the chase begins again. And the police know that Fritz is driving, Susie's in the passenger seat, and the kids are in the back seat. Well, all of a sudden, they hear, pow, pow. Oh, fuck. And the police are like, what the fuck was that? Fuck. What the, like, what the fuck was that? Yeah. And then, not long after that, Fritz stops the blazer. They hear... Like, the police hear a couple of clicks, and boom, the blazer blows up. What the fucking Josh Powell is going on here? hmm So the police are like, holy fuck, the blazer just blew up. Like, it just exploded. It's in a blaze. Damn. I'm sorry. Well, Susie is completely thrown from the vehicle, immediately dead. Fritz was also thrown from the vehicle, but when the police got to him, he was still alive. They were like, tell us what happened. And he didn't say anything and then died. The boys were in the back seat. Oh, forgot to sell this part too. Probably shouldn't, but I am. They also had their dog in the car with them. <gasps> mm-hmm. No. And the two boys and the dog were in the back seat, dead. Well... The crazy, not the craziest thing, because hello, the boys are now gone too. But it was almost as soon as it happened. And, you know, they see Susie's laying like in this culvert dead. Like she doesn't even have, like her lower body is gone from the explosion. They find the boys in the car. You know, of course they're doing like to make sure there's no other bombs too. But, and then. You know, they run up to Fritz to see if he would, you know, tell us everything. And then he just gurgles and chokes on his, or, you know, suffocates on his own blood and dies. And it was like, almost as soon as all that happened, the skies turned black. And what? it was this 
horrible rainstorm with wind and lightning and even hail. It was just like, it was like almost like in the book, it was almost like God was pissed that it happened, you know? Wow. Well, they did find the letter at that Fritz had written saying that, you know, Ian thought that he was in a CIA mission. They knew that Susie and Fritz always carried cyanide with them, just as like a get-out-of-jail-free card, I guess. Mm-hmm. Is it like in a pill form? I don't know. It's what he learned at the CIA. Mm-hmm. And at medical school. So when they did the autopsies on the boys... The boys had been poisoned with cyanide. So they were not long from dying from cyanide poisoning, which is a horrible fucking way to go. Yeah. But they were like, fuck, Fritz shot the boys and then stopped the car and they detonated the bomb. Well, the more they did the testing, because they were like, well, Fritz was driving. Like, how'd he do that? Like, we didn't see him... Like, he was, like, pointing the gun out the window, shooting at the police. But for him to be able to turn around and shoot those boys, probably not going to happen. So they did gunshot residue tests on Susie, and Susie's the one that killed the boys. Fuck her. hmm That bitch. hmm Wow. hmm So all in all, Dolores Lynch, dead at age 68. Janie Lynch, dead at 39. That's the mother and sister of Tom. Then Hattie, Bob, and Florence Newsom all died. Then Susie kills the boys in a fucking police chase. And the bomb was under Susie's seat. So they don't, I don't think they ever really know which one of them detonated it, but that it was clearly an understood mission between them. Like it was like they had a, Suicide pact. So now, poor Tom, who did everything he possibly could to get those boys back, to give them the life that they deserved, finds out that not only has he lost all of these people, ultimately it's all because of Susie. So to kind of wrap it up, the two officers that were shot, Tommy Dennis and Lenny Nobles, both made full recoveries. Ian Perkins, the Newsom family was like, no, charge him. Like, because they were like, we could charge him or not. Clearly, he was, a, you don't want to say a stupid kid because he thought he was part of a CIA operation that knew yeah. people were going to die. So, killing people are illegal whether you're part of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, they were like, it's up to y'all. And they were like, charge him. So, he had got four months in jail for being part of it. When they searched Susie and Fritz's apartment and Fritz's mother's house. Oh, shit. Dozens of guns. Wow. Like, dozens. You should see the list of guns. It's insane. It said that when the police officers raided Dr. Klenner's old office, that there were an, so many, like, vitamins and other medicines there that it took three dump trucks to haul it all away. Oh, what? Yeah. hmm What? I think, too, that the the state police, the local police and all that, they, I think that they did learn some ways in which they needed to do things differently because of the poor communication. A lot of this was because, again, the, the uniformed police officers didn't know what the fuck was going on because they were getting – because, again, it's 1985. Yeah. But, but what was happening is the state police were – they were calling the dispatch – 
dispatch was telling what they could understand and know. Like, they didn't know if... The uniformed officers didn't know if the unmarked cars were the suspect or the blazer. Like, just the communication was so bad. And so, you know, the law enforcement agencies took some heat for that. But Tom Lynch, he would not let John and Jim be buried in North Carolina. He got their bodies taken back to New Mexico. And this article says that they were buried in the last place they were truly happy. Fuck. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's the story of the Lynch Newsom murders. Wow. Mm-hmm. I like that book again was at first I was like, oh, my God, because the book starts out with the death of Dolores and Janie. And it spent so much time talking about how shitty of a person Dolores was. And I was like, how are they going to make this whole book about just these two dying? Yeah. Like, OK, yeah, it's a hit. OK. How are they going to make this whole, this is a long fucking book, you know? Like, how are they going to make this fucking, yeah. and then I was like, wait, who are they talking about? Because, again, it's so many names, and then it was like, all these detectives, and I was like, wait, okay, so that was, oh, and then it was like, I swear it was like halfway through before I started understanding what was yeah. happening, because I'm stupid. The- but, you know, like, when you only listen to like 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there, you know, you're like, wait, mm-hmm. what was going on? But then I was like, I'm sorry, what about the Fritz and Susie thing? I was like, Mm-mm. they what? Skirt. So it, it was it was a good book. If you want, because there was a, this guy did his fucking research. So, I mean, so much detail. I just was so heartbroken for Tom in the custody battle. And then it ended this way. And it just broke my heart. Like, seriously, Josh Powell. But it's Susie. I know. Like. I know. It pisses me off when people, like, don't allow their kids to see the other one and, Mm -hmm. you know, they're fighting. And then they're the ones who are doing all the bad shit to them and Mm -hmm. stuff. And I get why they don't want them to see, you know, like, all of that. But it's like, fuck you. Like, you don't even fucking care about them. Well, but it's... You're right. They don't care. But it's about winning. It's a power play. It's a game. It's a... They hate their ex-partner so much and they want to get back at them so badly that it's like they become a different person yeah and it becomes about hurting the other person as much as you possibly can and your kids are the pawn in the situation and it's so heartbreaking and that is why i could never do any type of like family law Mm -hmm. or anything like that because it's heartbreaking and there are a lot of things that we need to change about the ways that we decide custody you know father versus mother and and that's a very touchy subject because every father that's listening that doesn't have custody is like but every mother that's listening is like over my dead body you're taking my kids you know and so it's especially hard when you have two really good parents Mm -hmm. but when you have two parents that are using the children as pawns it's even harder and then when you have one terrible parent that has the power and the other parent just wants them, mm-hmm. that's worse too. Yeah. It's just a very delicate situation and can clearly lead to some really sad endings. Yeah. Well, hell, you know, I got to bring him up. Fucking Chris Watts. Mm-hmm. He said the reason why he went all crazy is because Shanann said that she was going to leave him mm-hmm. because he said, like, I'm not in love with you anymore, all that shit. And was like, and I'm taking the kids. And he was basically 
yeah, right, mm-hmm. and did all that, you know. Which I don't buy that that's his no, reason. No, 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 He had that all fucking, mm-hmm. mm-mm. But, you know, it's just like. Because it's your, it's your kid. It's your, I mean, that's a, you don't, don't fuck with your, somebody's kids, you know. Mm-hmm. And, like, I cannot imagine how hard that would be going from, you know, having a life where you have your partner and your kids and then. One day, one of the partners decides that they want out, and that's all destroyed. And then you don't get to see your kids every day because they decided that they wanted to end it. Yeah. Whether it's, I mean, no matter who it is. Yeah. That's hard. That's why I don't want kids. Like, for real, for real. Yeah, I can't handle that shit. No, I can't either. Well, hopefully your story isn't as long. Definitely not as long. And it's not sad like that but it's not like you know shooting rainbows and m&ms well why do you have to ruin m&ms for me (laughs) just kidding i'd still eat them but Mm -hmm. of course it's not because it's one of our stories right all right we have all heard of twinning like when we were tweedledee and tweedledum for halloween yes yes Mm mm-hmm and well, and this actually does apply to us and Tiffany, but they usually have their own language and, you know, mm-hmm. and then they have like a twin bond that no one can explain. It's just there. I mean, we don't have that, but you know what I mean? Actually, we do. Because when my stomach hurts, her stomach hurts. When her stomach hurts, mine does too. Well, and like I have friends that are triplets and they legit like, like legit have that where they yeah. like they know when something's wrong when they you know they know that's like one's hurting and all you know that's crazy however what happens when their bond turns deadly dun, dun, dun. thank you all right picture it barbados april 11th <gasps> my birthday mm-hmm, 1963 not my birthday <laughs> Gloria and Aubrey Gibbons welcomed their daughters, June and Jennifer Gibbons, into the beautiful world. So, obviously, they're twins. A little later, still tiny tots, the whole family moved to Wales. Are they fraternal or identical? Do we know? Identical. Okay. Don't be throwing shit out. Like, I was had to sift through all the files in my mind. <laughs> like, do 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 Identical. <laughs> they look alike. Hey, Donna, they I look alike. I was going to say, do they look alike or don't? No, I know. Still had to go through all the files. I know. When they moved to Wales, the twins were the only black children in their community, so they felt like they were an easy target, and unfortunately, they were. They also didn't speak English well, and they talked really fast, and so people had a hard time understanding them, which... Like, legit, I thought, oh, damn, that's kind of like us. We don't speak English very well. and <laughs> Yeah, and we talk really fast sometimes. Sometimes, not all the time. Sometimes no. I'm like, like, if I listen back to, like, a sinister sightings or something, I'm like, oh, my God, talk faster. I have to listen to us so fast. Well, we're reading, but, like, when we're talking, we skip words sometimes. True, like, true, true. You know, when we're just doing stuff. Or we don't finish fucking sentences. I never... You know what? This is a little bit of a tangent, and y'all are like, this is the longest fucking episode ever. Get on with it. But my, I had an aunt, my Aunt Doris. It was spelled Doris, but we're Southern, and so we said Doris. And she never finished a fucking sentence. <laughs> loved this aunt. She loved 
her. We'll still do love her, but she's passed now. And I would be like, dang, Aunt Doris, finish this sentence. And now I'm that person. Like, I will yeah. st- I will stop mid-sentence and just not finish. And it's like, what the fuck? Wh- when did I become Aunt Doris? Right. <laughs> it's bad. And, mm-hmm. I mean, we do it so much. We also can, like, if we have mouthfuls of food and stuff, like, we can communicate with our eyes and stuff. Mm-hmm. Unless it's, like, her saying, don't turn around, but look over there. Because then I'm like, whoa. Mm-hmm. And yeah, mm-hmm. fried rice falls out of her mouth. But <laughs> it was one time. <laughs> so they were bullied and harassed so harshly. And it even reached a point where the school dismissed them a little early because it's like, get a head start home. Oh my God. Yeah. The sisters were always together. They, you know, only had each other to feel connected to. And with all of the bullying, they were each other's safe haven. So from their original twin bond, and now from, you know, this bullying, this... Trauma. Yeah. They were inseparable. Which I feel like you see that even with siblings who have been through a traumatic upbringing or event Mm -hmm. or what have you, that they create that bond too. And that's just siblings, not, not even twins. Right. So they kind of secluded themselves, built up walls. No one could really penetrate. And since no one could really understand them anyway, they really did go as far as having their own language. Because first it was just talking fast and kind of a mix of different languages. Mm -hmm. Now it really was like different hand gestures. Sometimes it was like, squeaks and Mm -hmm. you know like all kinds of different things i wonder if their parents knew their language no only their little sister rose knew their language can you imagine how much of an outsider she felt the little sister they had two older sisters too okay okay yeah so it reached a climax where like they would not speak to anyone else other than themselves and rose like not at all they would not communicate They were also known, like, if they were walking, they would be in tandem, Mm -hmm. I guess, and mimic each other, like, down to the stride. They would stop. Like, if someone was staring at them, like, they just kind of stop until that person, you know, left or whatever, and then would go again. So, it brought attention more to them, but also it was probably a little bit of them being like, Fuck you. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You think we're weird anyway, but... Mm-hmm. Even in their house, they didn't speak to their parents. They only accepted meals outside of their door, like, set on trays, like, left outside. they do it. Their mom would have to push, like, letters or mail underneath the doors to communicate with them. And they would, like, leave notes stuck to the outside of their door if they wanted something. Like, they did not communicate other than that. They became known as the silent twins, or sometimes they were just referred to as zombies. Oh, fuck. Mm Mm-hmm. So, fast forward, twins are 14, and their parents have, like, okay, something's got to give. Let's send them to therapist, whatever. Like, we've got to, we can't keep living like this. Mm -hmm. But no one could figure out what was wrong with them, if anything was wrong with them. And so they said, okay, try to separate them because then they would be forced 
to not have someone, you know, Mm -hmm. you have to talk to someone Mm -hmm. or at least not mimic the person next to you. You know what I mean? Yeah. However, when they were sent off to the other locations, they would just be in a trance-like state. Well, God, I mean, the reason that they're acting that way is from trauma. And you're re-traumatizing them, I would imagine, by separating them. So you're just, it's like adding fucking gasoline to a fire. Yeah. Not that I know what the answer is, but I I feel like that isn't it. Right. When they were in that unresponsive state, they were described as being as stiff and as heavy as a corpse. Oh my gosh. They did not leave that state of Mm -hmm. being until they were reunited. So when they got back from that, they were like, fuck this. We really are. Like, we are just going to, again, stay in our room. And they had, like, their own fantasy world in their room. They had, like, all these dolls and stuff. It was like the original American Girl dolls. Mm -hmm. They had everything, like a biography for all of these dolls. And they even, like, had interactions. You know, I mean, like how we play with Barbies and stuff. But it got, like, crazy and, like, the dolls would die, but they would have, like, obituaries oh, and God. shit of, like, random. Like, it was weird. Part of me is, like, has, like, the old school thinking where it's like, well, you know what? Don't give them their food on their trays. They get hungry enough, they're going to come out and eat. You know, well, they put a, a note on the door that says this is what they want. Well, don't give it to them. They have to tell you. You know, and so it's so easy to have that way of thinking. And it's like, well you know what, take their fucking toys away, leave them in the living room. They have to, if they want to play with them, they have to come out, you know. But again, it stems from trauma and that's not how you address the trauma. I mean, I'm not a psychologist. So please, people who know more than this about this than I do, tell us. But I feel like that's just re-traumatizing them. It's not that simple to just yeah. say, well, they get hungry enough, they're going to come out and eat. Right. No, they won't. Yeah. They will go in a catatonic state like they did before. Yep. Because that's what that was. Mm-hmm. In 1979, as a Christmas gift, they got some red leather notebooks. And they began to write. They would each write around 3,000 words a day. Oh, shit. They wrote several little novels, like, independently. And their stories were... Um, Dark. Yeah. June wrote a book called Pepsi-Cola Addict. The main character's in high school, but was seduced by a teacher and then sent to a reformatory where a homosexual guard begins to pursue him. And it's very, like, he's underage, you know, like, I mean, it's taboo. Jennifer had a story, and it was about a family, and the dad was a doctor. His son... Needed to be saved. So the dad kills the family dog, gets the dog's heart, and transplants it into his son. However, the dog's spirit comes back and, like, uses the kid to exact revenge. Holy shit. Fucking dark. But I'm like, also, can you make that a movie? Also. I mean, don't kill the dog, though. Whoa. Yeah. Were they going to school still, or do you know? No, they weren't. Okay. And during this time, you know, 
their whole thing started out kind of as a game. Like, okay, we have a secret language. We're not letting anyone fucking in. You know, like, they bullied us. Like, they can't penetrate us, you Mm -hmm. know? But how they became, they both felt trapped and isolated. And we can see this because in those notebooks and everything, they kept diaries, like, extensive diaries. And Jean wrote, we are both holding each other back. There is a murderous gleam in her eye. Dear Lord, I am scared of her. She is not normal. She is having a nervous breakdown. Someone is driving her insane. It is me. Holy shit. First of all, that is very fucking deep. Yeah. And very self-aware, yeah. too. Yeah. But, like, scary. Mm-hmm. And then, like, what do you do? Because you're with this one person that you, you know, built a cocoon around yourself mm-hmm. with. But it's, like, such a... Love-hate relationship. Mm-hmm. Most reporters and therapists later would say, yeah, they had a very complex relationship. Mm-hmm. Filled with love, filled with hate, though. And at some points, the hate was a lot more than the love. Mm-hmm. They would have, like, violent fights that would be, like, scratching and, you know, like, hair pulling. All of the things. Another entry, June wrote, nobody suffers the way I do. Not with a sister. With a husband, yes. With a wife, yes. With a child, yes. But this sister of mine, a dark shadow robbing me of sunlight, is my one and only torment. Shit. Yeah. Then there was a time that June actually attempted to kill Jennifer by drowning her. What? Yeah. We learned about this through Jennifer, and she wrote... We have become fatal enemies in each other's eyes. We feel the irritating, deadly rays coming out of our bodies, stinging each other's skin. I say to myself, can I get rid of my own shadow? Impossible or not possible? Without my shadow, would I die? Without my shadow, would I gain life? Would I be free or left to die? Without my shadow, which I identify with the face of misery, deception, and murder. Damn. She a good fucking writer. I know. I know. So a little bit later, the girls are going through that rebellious stage. Even they have that rebellious stage. And they started experimenting with alcohol, weed. They started actually having some run-ins with boys. But they also started committing crimes. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, and it was, you know, starting out shoplifting or burglary, which are bad, but, you know, still petty and... Not violent crimes. Yeah. But then they started with arson. Not good. Mm Mm-mm. They set fire to a tractor store and a fire at a technical college. And this is the whole crime thing, that technical college... That it sends them to this hospital, Broadmoor Hospital in Berkshire, England, when they're 19. And the reason that they were sent to that hospital is that the judge ruled that they were suffering from a severe social disorder. They stayed at Broadmoor for 14 years. Oh, shit. Mm-hmm. And how, how they reacted at this place People took notice, and there was a journalist named Marjorie Wallace, and she covered them for the Sunday Times. And so that's kind of how their story really got famous. But okay, so at this hospital, 
doctors were like, the fuck? Because sometimes, like, they would take turns eating. One day, like, June would starve herself and Jennifer would, like, Templeton it mm-hmm. and eat everything. Next day, roles reversed. Then, like, they separated them again to be like, okay, then they're not going to know when the other one's not eating, mm-hmm. you know, and they can't give each other their food, you know, all of this stuff. Well, yeah, the nurses and doctors would, like, enter their room and they would be in a catatonic state again, but, like, in bizarre, your favorite word, poses. But they would match each other. Oh. <gasps> and they weren't anywhere close. There would be no way they would know what each other would be doing. Well, I was going to say, like, the bizarre poses and, like, sometimes, like, the rigidity that they could hold for ever and ever and ever, that's typical of a catatonic state. But for them to be in the same fucking poses, mm-hmm. that's a whoo okay. Yeah, it takes it to a whole nother level. Mm-hmm. So, after these 14 years, you know, during this time, they began to believe that in order for one of them to have a normal life, the other one was going to have to die. Oh, God. So, they had, like, lots of fights. Like, it was, I mean, they were legit about this. Mm-hmm. It was, like, fucking, you know, I mean, they're brainstorming on their life. Okay, pros, cons, pros, cons, you know, for each person. Yeah, who? how do you decide that? Who gets to live? Right. Well, they decided that Jennifer would be the one who would die. So, in March of 1993, they were like, all right, the sorry, the doctors. They were like, okay, we're going to transfer the twins to Caswell Clinic. And, like, right before this transfer, Marjorie Wallace came in to interview them again. And she had, like, a really good rapport with them now. She had been with them for years, you know. And, I mean, it, she had their trust and, you know, I mean, like, yeah. they had a bond and stuff. Well, during this visit... Jennifer was just like, Marjorie, Marjorie, I'm going to have to die. Oh, shit. And so Marjorie was like, the fuck? Why? And she just said, because we decided. Mm. So, okay. Now we're like to that transfer and they get in and Jennifer just kind of like puts her head in June's lap with her eyes open. And when they reached Caswell Clinic, Jennifer was unresponsive and pronounced dead by the (gasps) doctors. So they did an autopsy and everything. And later her cause of death was determined by a sudden lethal inflammation of the heart. What? Mm -hmm. But she did not have any drugs in her system, no poison, like nothing. And But they said, okay, all the drugs that they were given, because they were given, like, antipsychotics mm-hmm. for 14 years, they said it could have, like, weakened the state of her heart and everything. But June was given the exact same dose. And, you know, like, since they're so fucking well aligned, you know, but I mean, like, everything else, she was healthy. Wow. Like, it's just, what the fuck? Yeah. Well, I mean, she's, like, 33 years old. Mm-hmm. June said that. Jennifer's last words were, at last, we're out. Damn it. So she just, like, willed herself to die? That's what it kind of seems like. 
a little bit before the transfer, June said that Jennifer's speech started getting slurred. And so they were both like, okay, I think you're dying. And then when Marjorie Wallace came back another time, June told her, I'm free at last, liberated. And at last, Jennifer has given up her life for me. So yeah, Jennifer's death is still a mystery. And after her death, June started interacting normally with people. She didn't need, you know, like the psychiatric help anymore. She was released and pretty much fully accepted back into her community. What? Mm-hmm. By 2008, she was living independently near her parents in West Wales. In 2016 was kind of the last anyone heard of their family. And their older sister, Greta, was like, look, we're pissed at Broadmoor because we feel like they neglected them and kind of ruined their lives. And that led to Jennifer's sudden death. Greta was like, I want to file a lawsuit against Broadmoor. But Gloria and Aubrey were like, no, nothing we could do now would bring Jennifer back. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to leave with this. So, you know, they wrote poetry, stories, all of that. June wrote a poem for Jennifer's headstone. And it says, we once were two. We two made one. We no more two. Through life, be one. Rest in peace. Damn. Yeah. It's almost like a, um, what's that new movie that came out with the things? Us? Yeah. It's almost like that. Like, that they were, I mean, yes, they were twins, and it's 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 not that. Yeah, well, because like, they were more doppelganger. Yeah, it's, but it is a very, like, doppelganger-esque yeah. type relationship, mm-hmm. you know? But just that, like, what's, it, what's the, I, I'm trying to think of the relationship. All I can think of is symbiotic, but that's not it. But, like, it's like a positive and a negative relationship yeah. with each other. And so it's just... I don't know. Yeah. Well, and it's just like with that, yeah, they they always thought of themselves as being one person with their mimicking, mm-hmm. their like their speech, mm-hmm. all of the shit. And it's like they couldn't live a normal life until like metaphysically mm-hmm. they were one. Yeah. And, you know what I mean? And it's just weird though, like she willed herself to die. Well, and you know what's so funny is that you you looked at it like metaphysically they became one, and I looked at it as they cut the bonds that held them. Mm, yeah. Man, that's crazy. How, like, I just don't understand how she willed herself to die. Like, did June really strangle her, and they just didn't figure it out? You know, or suffocate her, and they just couldn't? I think at that point they, like, weren't with each other. But I thought she was laying in her lap. Oh, oh, on the way to the thing. Uh-huh. I don't know. I mean, something. I don't know. I mean, that what that's like fucking the notebook style. They just die. Yeah. Because I feel even then, like, if she was, like, choking her or whatever, even if you're like, yeah, I want, I'm going to, I want to die. It's like when you're being, like, suffocated or whatever, mm-hmm. you still have that, like, your body mm-hmm. goes into something. So it would still be like, what the fuck's going on back there? Maybe. I don't know. I don't know, but it was so fucking weird. I was like, uh, yes, please, more of these. And now I'm on like a kick. I want to know all the twin stories that are weird. So y'all just be ready. Well, there's that whole, again, that whole show on ID called Evil Twins. So look that up. And it's, I mean, obviously it's more like murdery things, but 
So check that out. It's good. It's weird, though, that our stories both, like, dealt with, obviously, families. I mean, all of our stories do that. But, like, siblings and, like, just weird dynamics in the family Mm -hmm. and that trauma that is caused and, like, what it does. I mean, like, obviously, Susie is the one who is the perpetrator of yours. Yeah, but on the flip side, though, Fritz was not, maybe not traumatized was the right word, but the environment that he was raised in created that Mm -hmm. of the hatred the bigotry, the yeah, all true. those things, the the violence, the guns, the this, that. And it led to him being the way he was. And, mm-hmm. and you know, honestly, I think with – I realize that it, this is a very, very simplistic way of describing this. But it also kind of comes down to, for Fritz, Susie, and the twins, the lack of accountability for their behaviors. Yeah. So – Fritz lies about going to college, about getting his medical degree, all this stuff, and he's never held accountable for it. Yeah. Susie flies off the fucking handle and cuts people out of her lives, and as soon as Fritz was brought up to her, she flies off the handle and moves out. And all, you know what I mean? So yeah. she, she was never, even as a child, when she would lose her shit, was never held accountable. The twins start creating this own their own language and their own lives for themselves in their room and so it's like if as way younger kids had they been held accountable what would the outcome have then been yeah or is this all part of a deeper psych i mean yes it is but you know all part of a deeper psychological source that no matter how they were raised they probably would have ended up the same yeah i don't know it's again it's the classic nature versus nurture Mm mm-hmm I love episodes like this, so that, like... Make you think. Mm-hmm. And we want to know what y'all think. Yes, we do, for sure. Because, again, we pretend like we know psychology. And by I, well, we, I don't. <laughs> I was going to say, and by we, I mean me. So, I guess what we learned is nothing. We learned that we have more questions yeah. about psychopathy and trauma. I mean, that's the thing, too, with trauma, is that it. I feel like we still just don't understand it. Mm-mm. And what constitutes trauma for each individual person and how are they re-traumatized in what should be the healing of their trauma. Yeah. Man, this episode was deep. Deep. Just like my voice right then. Y'all let us know what you think. Definitely. Well, this was a very long episode, but y'all, we were due one because we'd had a couple of short ones and we know that some of y'all freaking love the long episodes. So... Hopefully, y'all love it. And hopefully, the old man is snoring over here. Bo, y'all can't hear him. <laughs> yeah, we're trying to still figure out uh, levels of his snoringness. Yeah, Will says that he can't, he usually can't hear it. And that's before he, like, does, does sound weirdness. shit. Yeah, before he does what Will does best. <laughs> well, we so, don't know if that's what he does best, girl. I don't, mean, don't true, take that from him. True, true, true. Will, I mean, you could be good at a lot of things. He did say that he was bone daddy. I'm just saying, did y'all see that post in the Facebook group? Uh-uh. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. Uh, so y'all let us know if you can hear Bo snoring. I promise it's Bo, not Donna. I mean, it was her too, but mostly <laughs> Bo. This bitch. Will, play it back where Carrie, well, she doesn't snore, but on on this podcast. Tally for Carrie. Fuck. 
And remember, creep it real and don't don't get scared. scared.